If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the third chapter of the book of John. In the second week of August last year, we started the book of John, and we're now in the 16th verse of chapter 3. If you need your Bible for that, we will be reading verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think this, without any doubt, is the most popular verse in the Bible. I think that it's probably the most memorized verse in the Bible. There are people that know nothing at all about God that could recite this all the way, beginning to end. It's on every football game that I've ever seen. Somebody is holding a sign that says John 3.16. I always wondered, is it because someone will say, what is John 3.16? And then somebody will say, oh, it's in the Bible. And then they'll look it up. And the power of the gospel is there. Because that verse is almost like the entire Bible in one verse. It is speaking of it's the speaking of the gospel, which is the center of the Bible. It is speaking of how that God loves mankind through Jesus Christ. That's what it means. When you look at that idea that God loves the world, that God so loved the world, so much did he love the world that he gave, it is so huge that just because there's only a few words doesn't mean that you couldn't spend the rest of your life thinking about it or trying to understand it. So in the smallest way, I'm going to try to explain this tsunami that would be 100 feet high coming at you with the force of a freight train um, of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So... I'm just going to break down the verse. I'm going to just do John 3.16, John 3.16, John 3.16. I'm going to look at the first part, then the middle part, and then the middle part, and the middle part, and the end. And that's how I'm going to look at it. Try to make some sense of it. So, I wrote to start, for God so loved the world. When you look at the subject of this, God is the one that's loving. God is the lover. If God is the lover, there must be a different kind of love. There must be a different kind of love that God would have than I would have. So when I say, um, I love pizza or I love snow days, that's not the same. It can't be the same. It can't be what God is thinking. When God loves the world, there must be something in a different capacity than, than saying, you know, I love toast or whatever that I love, which I do love toast. I love fireplaces. I could go through the list. In fact, the Barnets play the I love game. The girls were griping once. They were very little, four or five, and they were griping. And I said, okay, you have to, and we're going to go around, and everyone has to say something that they like three times around, and then you can say something you don't like. Okay, they only get to gripe after they say something that they like three times. And then when you go through the list of all the things you like, that is a very fun game because essentially you're enjoying all the things you like just by going around the table. God's love can't be like that. God's love can't be like that. This is John, 1 John, which is the same writer of uh, the gospel, and this is in chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God, 
Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. All right? So even John is puzzling. He said, what is the kind of love? What, what wondrous love is this? It is not like the love I understand. It's not like the love I've ever seen. It's not like the love I've ever shown or been shown. It's a different capacity, a different word. When you, when you realize that the Greek language that the New Testament is written in is richer than English, like it says more, there's more nuance, it's more specific when it wants to say something, there are four or five different words for love. There's, there's the word for a father has for his children. There's the word for a buddy has for his friends. Or there's a word for um, just the things that you enjoy about your life that you love or like, whatever that is. There's the word for uh, how a husband loves his wife. And then there's the word that God uses when he loves. It's completely different. It's a different concept because it's a stronger kind of love. If I were to say, I love you, baby, because of how you make me feel, really what I'm saying is I'm completely self-centered and that you, I love you in whatever capacity that you're making me feel something or making me do something. And if this is the kind of love that people have, it really can easily be discarded. As soon as you stop making me feel a certain way, I no longer have those feelings that I call love for you because I'm not, no longer the center of the universe. But see, God doesn't look at the world that way. He doesn't look at the world and say, you make me feel great. You make me, I just love you because. Because in some way, the world is different than that. God has a love not for his friends. God have a, has a love for his enemies. God has a love for those who have offended him deeply, completely offended him. So when, when the writer says, oh, what wondrous love is this? And when John says, what manner of love is this? It's like a scratching your head. This doesn't make sense. It's not like anything I've ever seen. It's different. So when John here says, for God so much loved the world, there is something really, really strong about this. So what I did is I just took, I took the New Testament writers and a few of the prophets and I simply looked, is there a time that that writer has talked directly about God's love and did they describe it? And this is what I, this is what I pulled. I pulled five verses, five or six verses. In Ephesians 2, this is Paul writing, and he says that God's love is great. It's, it's, it's huge. It's um, big in, in every capacity, big. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you're saved. Do you see? He's saying the very same thing as John is here. People who were dead, that had nothing, no way to reciprocate, reciprocate no way to return God's love or even, re, even show God love back, that it's not a, I love you, you love me. Okay, so as long, people, we've got a new puppy at home, and you love him because of just the affection. He's continuously giving you affection, and you think that it's all about you, and you love that. But, you know, why people love cats, I'm not quite sure. They ignore you, and they allow you to take care of them to an extent, and I'm thinking, 
okay, where's the love in that? I'm not even positive that there is such thing. I think it's just you need to take care of something and so you have a cat. The idea that they don't return, they don't do anything, that's very much like a God love. God is not doing something so he can get something. It's a great love, Paul said. It's magnitude is beyond belief because, and then he goes on, it's great because, even when we were dead, he's made us alive in Christ. By grace, you're saved. That's what Paul said. Paul goes on in the same book in chapter 3 of Ephesians. This is verse 18. May, he's, it's a prayer, may you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's an unfathomable love. You can't, you can't reach to the bottom of it. You can't, put a, you can't put a heavy weight on a string and then just keep dropping down until it reaches the bottom. It is a bottomless pit of love. It, there's no bottom to it. It's as big as God is. His love is like him. Whatever he is, his love is like that. So it's, it's an unfathomable. And when you think of God's attributes being touching everything that is true about him. So his love has to be unfathomable, infinite because of his infinity. Uh, this is Paul again. This is in Romans uh, chapter 8. And I said he calls God's love almighty. Now you have to see as you look at the verse how I pulled that because as God is omnipotent and almighty, his love is like that. It's conquering. So this is uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that it's almighty? If nothing that you could name, if nothing that you could even conceptualize could remove you from God's love, then that love is a sealing love. It's a, it's a strong love. It's a love that that is... Um, powerful, more powerful than anything else. It trumps everything that you could name it to oppose it. When I went back to Jeremiah, and I went back to Jeremiah and, and Moses and the prophets, who also know about God's love, this is what Jeremiah said. This is from 31. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. We're going to see the same word here, everlasting. We're, it's in John 3.16. They might have everlasting life. Um, I have to be really careful of that because all I simply do is take the word ever, meaning on and on, and lasting means it, the duration of it is on and on. So it, I can quickly think, oh, everlasting life means it never ends, that it's just about the duration. But when, when you have an, other versions that instead of using everlasting, they use eternal it's not just exactly a synonym. It's not an eternal life doesn't simply mean never stops, like it starts and never stops. An everlasting life in many ways is the type of life that God has. It's the same life that you would have in eternity. It's that eternal type of life. It's a different kind. And if God's love is everlasting, then it's the love that God has in where God is. It is a, it's a unique type of love that's like him in eternity, where, wherever eternity is. 
ongoing in the deepest past and the deepest future. Then I pulled Moses, because if you were to ask many people about God's love, they would say it's unconditional, and that that's why, that's why that he would be able to reach out to his enemies and not just his friends. He's not fickle like us. It's a different kind of thing. I pulled something from Moses. This is from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all people. But, God, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, I had to read it several times because I, when you give me too many, ver, too many words, I'm just like, I just get overwhelmed. I'm not sure what it exactly said. But then I just went back and it says, not because that you were better, not because it was something you could give me. We don't add value to God. We're not, God has not improved because we are in the picture in any way. But he said, it's not because I set, he didn't set his love on you or choose you because you were bigger, because you weren't. But because the Lord loved you, that's why he did it. So that love actually comes in God's person. It's something that comes from him. It's something that comes from, from the depth of his character, the depth of his personality. That love is an expression of himself. And this is Paul again, because I'm, it's, it's an, basically mirrors what Moses just said. This is Romans 5.8. But God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before anybody had ever sinned, before there was sin, before there was man, before there was the Garden of Eden, God loved us. That there is something in the depths of God's heart that is expressive of himself. There's something in the nature of God that's something that is different than what's in the nature of me. So when I love, at best, even my highest love, the, the noblest love, the most pure love that you could ever aspire to, is only a dim reflection of what God's love is. But God's love is like him. In fact, it is one of the few attributes, few modifiers, or few descriptions of God where God is actually called love. This is 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth God knoweth he that loveth knoweth not, oh, sorry. He that loveth not, needs some, you need some punctuation here. He that loveth not knoweth not God, because God is love. Like it's love and God is almost synonymous here because what God is, is the expression of love. Now, many people would take and go with that. Well, that's wonderful. It means I can do as I please, live as I want, be anything I want, and God will simply love me. He will love me. I, you know, all dogs go to heaven. We're all, it's very easy, and it's very painful to go to a, a funeral of, of, of someone you knew was a wicked person, but yet everyone needs to say something nice. Everyone needs to say they're in a better place. It's not the truth. That's not the truth. The truth is God is love, and that love has expressed itself by giving. And that's the next thing that I see in John 3.16. He loved the world so much that he gave, that it's a sacrificial type of love. And he gave, a, he gave it so that we would not perish. That means we're going to perish. 
that he would give his son that we would not perish means that we're going to perish. That, there, that though he is love itself, that that's what God is, is love. That does not mean that there is no justice because God is holy and God is fair and God will, will judge righteously. God does not, one attribute of God does not counter or, or ex, extinguish another. So God is loving and he love his love, he commended his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he shows his love. God brags on his own love in saving his enemies so that they would not perish. Now that is remarkable because what that's saying is God is allowing us to have what we ought never to have had, and that is salvation. And that that will magnify the Lord Jesus in the highest way. He is, he is yes, righteous judge, and that will exalt him, but he is also complete savior. So when, when, when Jesus was, was put to death for our sins, God is satisfied. Our sins are gone. So it's interesting. It's a vast love. Vast as the ocean, one of the hymns we'll sing eventually. The love of God, vast as the ocean. So, so let's look at the object of God's love. So I'll go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he, for God, for God so loved well, let's go to the object, the world. Because I have, to, I have to think, I'm not anything worthy of loving. Because if, if truly I look at myself according to the way the real Bible talks to me, it shows that I don't love God, that there's something in my heart that's opposed to God, that I run from God. And not run from God as an innocent person that's afraid of a God, but a person who is obligated to God and that I am opposed to him in my nature, like inside of me, in who I am, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do the exact opposite. And that's where I think people will disagree. They don't want to hear the real Bible. They want to have their own imaginations of what they want God to be so that everything works out like a fairy tale. But this is total reality. The act that God created the world is a total reality, and everyone in the world knows that God created the world. He knows that I'm obliged to this creator of mine, that I know that it's beyond any belief that you could, enough atoms shaking around in a shoebox for 1,000 billion years would not create Mozart or architecture or a chess game or, or even talking to a small child. That's beyond anything that randomization could ever give you, and people know it. It's just that there is no other option than, than to say there is a God that I'm ab obliged to, and this very God has a character different from mine, and that's a terrifying thing. But the Bible is clear. These are words that I found in the Bible, and I'm sorry I'm going to hit you with a sledgehammer, but I'm going to hit you with a sledgehammer. Lost, sinful, vile, rebellious, ruined, guilty, defiled, corrupt, depraved. And that's only my first line. Second line, enmity to God, hating the truth, in rebellion against his commandment. That's the second line. Third line I wrote, under his wrath, condemned and uncaring and indifferent towards his love. This is who we are. This is who every one of us are. The most religious here are indifferent truly to the love of God, that you want what you want, you want it both, but you want to be free. You want to exhibit your 
heart in the way you want to do it, and you want God to okay it. And God is, the God is just, and he's holy, and he demands that his creatures be holy. And there is the problem. There is the ruinous problem of mankind, is that we are not lovely. The, God's love is towards sinners. God's love is towards rebels. God's love is towards people who are in anarchy, against his rule and against his commandment and have really truly if we could say if you could say God doesn't exist I would rather have it that way then I don't have to deal with God's demands or expectations it's not the fact that it would be better for me to simply be at peace with this God I'd rather this God not be and and I truly think that every human heart would put God out of existence and you only have to look at our country or other countries and see that that's essentially what we've tried to do. We simply ignore it. Ignore it as though that it's, it's fantasy. As though somehow you're, you're just as scared of trolls or, or, or Mordor that you would be uh, as afraid of, of a living God who demands you to live as he expects and you've already ruined it. So there is no reason for God to love us. I, I just need to, to say that that is biblical there is no reason. I pulled this from Romans 3.24. When I preached this verse a couple years ago, I discovered this word. I simply did a word, a word study like I do normally. What does this word mean and how is it used in the Bible? This is Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which doesn't seem like it's a, a sticky out word at all. Justified freely just means that God had, you know, freely gave it to us, that he didn't, that there weren't strings attached, that he did it freely. But all I did was simply look up that word and say, where is it used in the New Testament and what is it translated in the New Testament? And I pulled this up. This is John 15, 25. And the same word for freely, see if you can find it. It's the same word for freely here. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Freely means without a cause. He justified us freely. There was nothing in me that made him do it. There was no moral something that God looked at and said, oh, that's redeemable. I love him for that. Oh, I love him for that. No, God looked at me and all I wanted was me. I wanted me to be the star of the show. I wanted, I wanted to be my own God and I lived that way. Now, everybody has a different personality. Some people are absolutely wild and crazy. And other people are very law keepers and, and good and keeps under the radar. But you are just as rebellious in your personality as other people are in their personality. You can look and say, this person's worse than me. Okay, I would never have a tattoo of Satan across my forehead. Though I had a friend who witnessed to a uh, guy in a biker bar with Satan written across his forehead. And he said, now listen, Satan. You need to get saved. That's what he said. Satan was he had Satan written right across his forehead. And he's like, you need Jesus. I just think it's funny. Without a cause is how God loves us. Without a cause. There's no nothing in me. It's in him. It's in hidden character. It's not because of what the world was, but in spite of what the world was, that God would love us. This is first John again. I, I if you're going to study love in the Bible, it's John the Apostle that writes about it. He writes about it everywhere. John wrote the gospel that we're studying right now. He wrote three letters at the end of the Bible, and he wrote the book of Revelation. 
And everywhere you look, he's like his main theme is brothers love each other. God loves us this way. We love each other. There's a response in our heart because of the love. He didn't even call himself John in the gospel. He called himself the disciple that Jesus loved because that love that God showed, that, that love that only God loves with was so foreign to him that when he felt it, when he saw it, when he knew it was true, that's all he could talk about. It was his theme for the rest of his life. That's all he said. This is in 1 John 4. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. God sent Christ to be the propitiation. Propitiation means that God turned away his wrath as a result of something Jesus did or was. That God had wrath towards us because we were going to perish. We're going to see that so they should not perish. We were going to perish. Our, our, it's done. Our con condemnation is already, it's finished, it's done. We're condemned. Now, is there an escape? That's, that's the uh, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear means I'm condemned. Is there an escape? Is there mercy for me? That's the question to myself. Is there mercy for me? Because it's done. It's not like, oh, it might happen. It will happen. It has happened. It's done. So when it said he sent his son to be the propitiation, what Jesus was turned God's wrath away from us. And now his heart is to us. He's inclined to us to treat us kindly for Jesus' sake. And I want to I wanna to preach to Brian Barnett right now that, that it is very easy when you realize that Jesus was the propitiation that turned God's wrath away from me. I could think something very wrong about the Bible, and that is that God would really choose to hate me. But because of Jesus, okay, I'll love him. Because G I love Jesus so much, God says, that I'll accept Brian. Oh, that's not true. That is not true. This says, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Think it through. Jesus had not come when God sent him. Jesus had not died when God sent him. God, Jesus had not propitiated God and turned his wrath away from me when God sent him. It was God's choice to send his son, to send his only begotten son. That was God's love. It's love inside God for us. Now that is amazing because true, when Jesus died for me, all of my sins are gone because Jesus died for them. All of them are gone and God's wrath is turned away from me because of what Jesus did. But the love that God had is not because Jesus died for me. God does not love us because Jesus died for me. God loves us, period. God loves you if you will never go to heaven. God loves you. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what should I do to be saved? Or what should I do to have it everlasting or inherit the kingdom? And God said, well, or Jesus said, uh, what does the scripture say? You know, and he goes through the Ten Commandments. You preach the Ten Commandments to a, to a self-righteous person, that's what you do. You preach the law. Jesus preaches the law. And he goes, oh, I've done all those things. Oh, since I was a boy, I've, yeah, I've always kept, I've got, did that. The God, check, got it all. And Jesus said, hmm, well, then go sell everything you have and come follow me then. And he was like, hmm, not sure about that because I'm rich. That's a problem. 
But the first verse, when Jesus encounters that man, is he loves him. That man says, all of these have I kept from my youth. And the next verse is, and Jesus loved him. Knowing that he was going to depart from him, never to come back. And Jesus loved him. That's the love of God towards wicked people. The love of God is that it's something in God that wants to love. God's loving kindness is just as eternal as his holiness. His loving kindness is that he wants to treat us kindly. And he went to the extreme. He sent his son. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He gave his only begotten son. He gave. It's sacrificial. You can't really trust love if there's no sacrifice for it. You can't really trust it. It's, it could possibly be an emotion or an infatuation or some kind of a lust or some kind of a, a something in your heart, some kind of a puppy thing. But you really know love when it does something, when it shows something, when the mother stays up all night and, is, and doesn't yap at you at the same time and does just tolerate it. When, when someone who really knows you and knows that you have a personality flaw that drives them up the wall, but he doesn't bring it up, that you just, you just kindly treat them, that you, that you speak quietly when, you're, when you would rather speak harshly. That's love. That's sacrifice. When someone works, gets up every day and shaves every day and goes to work every day before the sun comes up, that's love. It does something. It's a giving love. And when you do that, you're doing something like God. You can have a character in some ways like God. You're not omnipotent. You're, you're not flawless in your, in your morality. But you can reflect the way that God works. And a person who has loved God for years upon years, the Holy Spirit's working in their life to sanctify them, to make them more and more like God's character, to where you truly are more patient than you ever were. You don't try to work on it, okay? You want to pray for patience? That, you know, you're f foolish, but, but th that's what will happen. But you're, what's going to happen is that the more you look into the way God treats you, the more you're willing to treat others like that. There is a growth among Christians. There is. And it, there's no merit in that. It's not like I'm a better person. I'm just the same person as always was. If I needed a Savior, I still need a Savior. But when you look at a person who's following Jesus, and that's all following means, you're looking and following Jesus, you will see character traits of Jesus Christ in that person. You really will. Little by little by little by little. You probably won't see it in yourself. Others might see it before you do. Strange enough. So, sent his only begotten son. Here is where so very few people dig in the Bible enough to realize who Jesus Christ is. God sent his son, his only begotten son. Jesus Christ is God himself. Jesus Christ is co-equal with God. He's co-eternal with God. He has every attribute God has. He is the creator himself. Jesus Christ is the one who said, let there be light. There's 10 scriptures clear as a bell that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. It is God. Jesus Christ is is subordinate, but not lower. He's subordinate in, in that he, re, he always allows the Father to rule, but he will be put in charge of all things. 
on the day that he washed the disciples' feet, the first thing it said is that he knew that he was going to God, he came from God, and that all things, he was given the authority to do all things. When he commands us to go and make disciples, he said, I have all authority, all authority. There is nothing that I do not command. I command all of it. So he knew who he was. He recognized who he was. And Jesus, in Psalm 40, said, A body you have prepared me, I will go. I will do your will, O God. That's my great delight. Jesus Christ was not dragged into, a, into, a, into uh, death and, and uh, suffering and being completely rejected by God himself. That had never happened in all of eternity. He was willing, but God sent him. It was God's plan that that would happen, and it was totally Jesus' part to do exactly the same. He, he came to live like us, to breathe our dirty air and to live in our, in our polluted place, to live in this thorn place with, the, with crooked people ruling them and people that wanted to use and abuse you, and that's all. And he lived there. He understood it. There's nothing that we've ever endured that Jesus didn't endure. They took his clothes before they killed him. How low can you go? It, Paul said, even death on the cross, even. They didn't even allow Roman citizens, was not permitted to be crucified if you're a Roman citizen because it was too horrible. It was, beyond, it was below even the worst. Only slaves and prisoners could be crucified, nobody else. But Jesus was, was God, is God, was God, will be God forever and ever, and came and went as low as he could. This is his only begotten son. Begotten just means unique, one of a kind, only like him, one. And God gave him. God could have given the universe, and it would have been cheaper. He could have given heaven and all the angels and everything he owned all the cattle on the thousand hills could have been given to us. And it wouldn't have been anything. It would have been a drop in a bucket. But Jesus was given. Because if he wasn't given, we would perish. That you should not perish. The love of God saw our need and met it in the most expensive possible way. Most expensive. He was lifted up like a serpent on a stick in between heaven and earth, that all people that would look upon him, he would bear their sins. He would be their substitute. This is his only begotten son that he gave, that he gave. This is Romans eight thirty two again. He that spared not his own son, but delivered, us up for, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him also freely give us all things? He delivered him up to be judged, to be killed, to be rejected, and God rejected him too. But Jesus, Jesus was on the cross for hours in the dark as he was fully absorbing God's wrath, every drop of God's wrath that he would have on man. Every bit, God, your sins are gone. Your sins are gone if you've trusted in Christ because all of them were on him. He totally suffered for you. It's, it's not to be returned to you again. It's gone. There's nothing. He has no offense anymore because of who he was. He spared not his own son, but delivered, us up, delivered him up for us all. We read, Aaron read, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was him, it was God that put him to grief. That's, it was God's plan. This is 1 John 4, verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God for us. This is how he shows his love. This is how God showed his love. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Here is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. We just saw that a minute ago. That's what love is. Love is that God gave, and he gave his only begotten son. And then here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Whosoever, what a word. The little kids have their, had their pr program last Wednesday, and on the back of every one of their t-shirts, it just says, whosoever. It's awesome. That's awesome. Whosoever. Whoever. Whoever. Whoever you are. Whatever you've done. Whatever you've whatever you have that no one's ever found out about, whatever you've done, whatever you are, whoever you are, wherever you're from, you can come. You can come because you should not perish. God's love for you is that you should not perish. You shouldn't perish. Now, when you look at this verse, it's one word in, the, in Greek. It's one word. It's the person that is trusting in him. That's what it is. It's not whosoever that would believe in him. It's the person that is trusting in him. That person will not perish. So how do you know if you are going to perish? The question to yourself is, am I trusting in him? Have I come to him the way he has required me to come to him? Do I come to him hum with humility? Have I come to him recognizing that he must be come to that he's the savior, that he has done everything, that he's worthy to be my savior. He's worthy to be the victim. He's good enough to save me. He's strong enough to save me, and he endured God's wrath, and it's done already, and all I must do is come to him in faith. If he said, come to me, believe on me, and win Ninja Warrior, then you can be saved. Well, or come to me and raise one million dollars towards your local charity or your dog kennel or whatever it is and you will be saved. No. Or believe in me and be perfect from now on. Do you understand? The person who is believing in him should not perish. It's to everybody. You preach to everybody. You preach to everybody. Every single person. All of it. You go to the nations. You go to your family. You go to this town. You go to the low. You go to the high. You go to the poor. You go to the rich. You go to yourself. That's who you go to. And you say, you should not perish. He loves you, and he doesn't want you to perish. He gave his son to those who believe upon his son. Now, I haven't pulled out every preposition in this verse, but I have to do the in. Believeth in him. The word is into, not in. If you believe in something, it just means you believe it exists. If you believe into something, it means that you have now put yourself into it. You are, you are putting your, your person into that you believe that it will happen or not happen. Okay, You don't just believe that something could happen. You have put yourself at risk into it. You have said, I will put all my eggs in that basket. 
I will get onto that tightrope if you if I believe that you can take me across on a wheelbarrow. Well, believing in the fact you could take me across in a wheelbarrow and believing into you putting me in that wheelbarrow and then taking me across is two different things. To believe in him means that you are investing yourself in him. You're, you're saying it's not, oh, yeah, yeah, you can do it. No, it is I will put my full trust in you. I will not stand on any other floor. I will stand only on you because I believe by faith that you are the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand, and you do something about it. Faith is doing something about what you believe. That's faith. That's believing in him. Should not perish, but hallelujah, have everlasting life. Have the life that God has. Have the life that he is. He puts, he puts it into our souls that it's God's life into my soul. Jesus said, I came that you would have life. And that you would have it abundantly. And it's put in my soul. And it's something that will be me forever. And when you see that Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus raised from the dead to prove that what he was saying was true. It's vindicated. So all it's doing is giving us more hope for our faith. And our faith in him is that he is risen. And we will raise like him. We will be like him, that he will raise our mortal bodies just like his glorious body. Because our faith is in him, what happened to him happened to us. We were buried in, in trespasses and sins and raised again to, to new life. That's, that's Jesus' plan for us, that we would be alive, that we would not perish. But not just not perish, have eternal life now, not in later, you don't wait for that. You wait for you. You wait none, no time at all. Put your faith in Him, and whatever life God has is yours, and that's what He plans. He plans for us to be flourishing. Hallelujah! Can you worship your Savior when you know what a Savior you've had? I love it. I love it.